Thank you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. At all the campuses or online, we're so glad you're here. Some years ago, Tim McGraw, the country music artist, sang a song entitled, Live Like You're Dying. And the song really strikes a chord of emotions for most people as it centers on this man in his young 40s who realizes with his terminal diagnosis that he doesn't have very long to live. And the news really begins to change his perspective about life. It, it begins to reorder his priorities as he deepens the relationships with those that matter most to him. And really, the news is a call to action for him as he, as he begins to do things that perhaps he knew earlier on he should have done, but he starts to do them now. And he really begins, in light of that news, to live life on purpose, to live life with meaning, to live life with intentionality. Why? Because the end is near for him. I think we can relate to that, can't we? We really can. When life is short and that's facing us, boy, it does just generate this sense of urgency. Well, Peter, in the passage we're going to look at, first uh, Peter chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at the first few verses there, starting with uh, verse 7 all the way through to verse 17, or 11, excuse me. Peter, in this passage, is saying this, I want you to live like you're dying. I want you to live with the end in mind. And I want that reality to begin to impact the way you think, to begin to impact your actions so that you give glory and honor to God with your life. Look at how he kicks off the, the, this verse, verse 7. The end of all things is near, he says. Now, most scholars would agree that what Peter is talking about here is the second coming of Christ. It's when God is going to establish his kingdom. Now, you may be thinking, Peter, you got it all wrong. Because, you see, he wrote that some 2,000 years ago, and clearly the end has not happened yet. You got it wrong, Peter. But what we have to understand is when Peter wrote these words, he did not intend them to be predictive or prophetic as it relates to the timing of when Jesus would come back. And we know that because if, if you look in Acts chapter 1, you will see that Peter, along with some of the other apostles, asked Jesus, is this the end? Is God going to establish his kingdom now? And you remember how Jesus responded? He said, it's not for you to know. No one knows that. So just go ahead and live your life in a way that is honorable and pleasing to God. So Peter, when he wrote these words, did not intend them to, mean, to, to be prophetic as it relates to the timing of when Jesus would come, meaning in a few weeks, a few months, a few years after he wrote these words. Rather, what he's doing is reminding you, he's reminding me that the end is coming. Jesus one day will come back, and he's saying, I want you to be ready for that. Now, whether he comes in our lifetime, no one knows. But the reality is, life is short, isn't it? Life is really short. And the older we get, the faster it goes. I was talking to Mike North right before the service, and he goes, Pat, I've been here five years. Oh, my goodness, I thought he just started last week, you know. 
It goes by fast. Remember what James said, this side of eternity, he goes, our lives, it's like a blink of an eye. It's, it's like a vapor here today, gone tomorrow. It goes by so quick. And so for everyone, really, listen, in light of eternity, life is short. Sorry about that. Life is short. Sorry. I'll take my jacket off. Hello? Let's start over. <laughs> oh, oh, brother. Life is short. <laughs> Amen. And, and in light of that, listen, Peter is saying, listen, in light of that reality, I want that to begin to impact the way you think, to begin to give you the proper perspective I want that to reorder your priorities and I want it to call you into action. Because one day all of us will be in front of our Heavenly Father and we will give an accounting of our lives. So Peter in this passage is giving us three specific calls to action. So if you're taking notes, point number one is this. Peter is saying this, we are called to pray. Look what he says here. Therefore, all right, the end of all things is near. Therefore, he's got, getting us thinking about the end. Be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Now we understand if we've been in the faith for any period of time, we understand the importance of prayer. We're commanded to pray often in scriptures. And yet I understand that prayer can be very very difficult. I mean, praying to a God who's invisible, who's not physical, can be real difficult. And, and you may think, what do I say? Is he really interested? Does he really hear me? Or you may think, isn't he all-knowing? Doesn't he know all things? I mean, he knows all the needs in the world. In fact, he knows my individual needs. So why, why pray? And it can be very difficult for some of us to engage in prayer. In fact, the apostles, we read, had a hard time praying. And they would witness this vibrant prayer life that Jesus had. And, and, and they went up to him and said, Jesus, we want to pray like you. Would you teach us to pray? Do you remember that in the scriptures? And you remember how Jesus responded? He handed them down the Lord's Prayer. It's that model prayer. And what Jesus gives us in that passage is a way that we ought to think about prayer. It's really the mind and the heart that we ought to have behind prayer. And really, if you look at that passage, this is what Jesus is telling us about prayer. He's saying this, prayer is all about acknowledging the power and the majesty of our Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Prayer is all about desiring His will more than our wills. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? Prayer is all about being satisfied and not wanting more than what we need and thanking God for our daily provisions. Give us this day our daily bread. Prayer is all about obeying God. Lead us not into temptation. 
And prayer is all about understanding that there is an enemy who wants to destroy our Christian witness and our message of hope for God in Christ. Deliver us from the evil one. You see, prayer is all about understanding who God is and what he desires for our lives. Jesus is saying this. Prayer is all about acknowledging him, desiring him, being satisfied in him, thanking him, needing him, knowing him. Oswald Chambers said this about prayer. Prayer is the way that the life of God in us is nourished. The purpose of prayer is that we may get to know God himself. And when we do, it changes us. Now, I go through that to tell you that Peter in this passage is saying, hey, Christian, you won't pray like that. You will not engage in that kind of biblical prayer unless, look what he says, unless you, unless you are alert and of sober mind. Hmm. Interesting. Has anybody seen that program, Intervention? It's when family and friends get together with the help of a substance abuse counselor in order to intervene in the life of a loved one who is literally destroying their lives with drug and alcohol addiction. And before the intervention, they interview the person who's struggling with addiction. And oftentimes, during the interview, the person is taking their drug of choice. I mean, they are intoxicated. And when they speak, they make very little sense. In fact, they seem not to really be connected with reality. They really don't understand the severity of their problems, nor do they care. They really don't sense how they're hurting their family and their friends, nor do they really care. They're not connected with reality. And of the few times I've seen that program, every time they're offered help, their initial response, it's not their ultimate response, but their re initial reaction is to say no. And, and I find myself yelling, you know, at the TV, man, you need help. You need to get sober. You need to start thinking clearly so you can get your life back on track. You know, I think Peter is saying that same kind of thing to some of us. It's kind of a warning, if you will, and also a reminder. And he's saying, hey, Christian, listen, listen, you need help. And you need to be of sober mind, and, and you need to think clearly. Otherwise, you will not pray. You won't do it. Now, Peter, in this passage, is not specifically speaking about being under the influence of drugs and alcohol, okay? Obviously, that would fall under this. I mean, that would certainly inhibit our ability to pray, but it's bigger than that. It's more general than that. And Peter would be saying this to you. He would be saying it to me. Listen, listen. He's saying, hey, Christian, if you don't really give much thought to the power and the majesty of your heavenly Father and acknowledging him as the creator of the heavens and the earth 
as the alpha, the omega, the beginning, and the end, if you don't give that much thought, you just may be intoxicated. And if you desire your will and your pursuits and your pleasures and your possessions more than you desire God, you just may be a bit intoxicated. He's saying, listen, if, if, if you think you are the source of all the blessings you have in your life, you know, man, look at all that I have. It's all because of my hard work and my smarts, and you don't give much thought to the God who gave you the ability to do that. Hey, friends, listen, if that's you, you just may be a bit intoxicated. And if you as a Christian don't think that being obedient to God is really all that important, you just may be intoxicated. And if you don't think there's a spiritual war going on right now between good and evil, and the battle is for our minds because the way we think so significantly influences our lives and the lives of those we love, if you don't think that's going on, you just may be intoxicated. You say, intoxicated with what? The world. You know, it's easy to get intoxicated, really, with the world and all its lures and enticements. It really is. It's so hard not to be intoxicated with the world. And yet, as Christians, we are warned often not to be. Do not conform to the patterns of this world but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are below, which is the world. We're to be in the world, don't get me wrong. Yes, we are. We are to be influencing this world in positive, meaningful ways for God, but we're not to be of the world. John says it this way in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, catch this, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You know what that is? It's a mindset that says life is all about the here and the now and the me and the mind. If that's the way we predominantly think, that does not come from the Father. It comes from the world. And if that's the way we think, Peter is saying, you're not going to seek help in prayer. You won't do it. Theologian and pastor and author John Piper said this, one thing will make you a person of prayer namely sobering up from the addictive, inebriating power of worldliness. If you are drunk with worldliness and only think of the pleasures of the world, then you will have no, catch this, no taste or desire for heaven and no desire for prayer. That's some hard words. You say, what do I do with this? Listen, if that's you, the good news is our Heavenly Father is just waiting for us. With open arms, he's waiting. Make some time. Seek his face in prayer. And when you do, 
Remember, pray the way Jesus instructs us to pray with that kind of heart, with that kind of mindset. And when we do that, listen, it's guaranteed you will begin to be more and more sober-minded. And when you are, you will seek God's face even more in prayer. That is why Peter links the mind with prayer. They go hand to hand. Peter says the end is near. He's given us some real practical wisdom here. He's saying, hey, one day you're going to be in front of your heavenly maker. It just may make some sense, just a thought, to have a relationship with him now. Peter says, in light of the end being near, he's calling you, he's calling me to pray. Point number two. In this passage, Peter is calling us as well to love deeply. Look what he says. Above all, love each other deeply. Your translation may say fervently because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love covering sins. You know, the first cover-up story recorded in history, believe it or not, is a cover-up by God. Yeah. It's recorded all the way back in the book of Genesis. You know the story when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that led to some big time consequences that sin did. Yes, it did. It led to what theologians call the fall recorded in the third chapter of Genesis. But there's something else that often we miss in that story. It's when Adam and Eve were cowering down and hiding from God. Do you remember that? And they were fearful. They were scared. They, they were burdened with this guilt that was on their shoulders because of what they did. And you remember what God did to them? Even in the midst of sin, even in the midst of judgment, you see this beautiful picture of God's love, and he makes clothes for them. And he covers their nakedness. In fact, it's the first act of redeeming grace in scriptures. And from that point throughout scriptures, we see God continually covering up his sinful people. And it culminates with the doctrine of justification where believers are covered with the righteousness of Christ. It's a cloak, a coat that covers sins. Peter in this passage is not talking about that kind of love. He's not talking about the love between God and his people, but rather he's talking about a special kind of love, and that is the love between brothers and sisters in the faith. He's talking about the love between Christians. It's a special kind of love that covers sins. Now you may be thinking, well... Don't Christians all get along? Is there nervous laughter back there? <laughs> well, we should. I, I, I guess in theory, yeah, we should. The reconciling power of Christ ought to create this sense of unity, certainly, in the body. But it's not always the case. 
There was an article in the Columbian Daily Herald entitled Church Splits and Conflicts. And in that article, they reported over 19,000 conflicts and divisions in churches, Christian churches in America a year. It's like 50 a day. And that ought to make you think, man, man, that just, that's terrible. We're called to be a powerful witness to a divided world. We're not to be divided in Christ. And yet it shouldn't surprise us, really. Because every one of us, even as Christians, every one of us, I hope this doesn't offend you, we're all a little messed up, a little bit, you know. We're sinners. We fall short. We all come to our faith with different baggage. Hey, we're all at different stages in our journey to being Christ-centered. We're not perfect. And so there will come a time or two when a brother and sister in the faith will say something or do something that will bother you and annoy you. It's going to happen. And And Peter would say in this passage, love them anyway. In fact, he puts such priority to this passage and to what he's saying here. He's saying, above all things, love them. But it's not just love them. Did you catch it in the passage? He's saying, love them deeply. Love them fervently. Picture a runner running at maximum output towards the finish line. And they're straining and stretching towards the finish line. And their muscles are taut. And they're aching. And they're hurting. And they want to stop. But they keep on persevering towards the finish line. That would be a runner who is running fervently. Because the very word translates into straining and stretching. Peter, in this passage, is saying, I want you to love like that. I want you to love your brother and sister in the faith that way, straining and stretching in your love. You know what what he's saying there? I want you to love when you don't feel like it. I want you to love when it hurts. I want you to love even when your brother and sister said something, does something that bothers you and that annoys you. You know, it's a, it's, it's a love that really crosses the barrier of human emotion. It's a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. So when a Christian, when a brother and sister in the faith does something to bother you and annoy you, how are we going to respond in light of this passage? You know, sometimes love means ignore it. Because to address it would just be nitpicking small stuff. And that leads to division unnecessarily. Recently, a friend of mine was leading a breakout session of a a group of women that were studying the Bible together. 
And there was this young girl who was very new to the faith who said some off-the-cuff comments that could have been offensive to my friend. But rather than taking offense, she kind of just blew them off and ignored them. And she realized that that other girl was really immature in the faith. And so she reached out to her and invited her to study the Bible one-on-one. And that girl was ecstatic. She wanted to do it. And over time, they developed a very close friendship. That, I believe, is exactly what Peter is talking about in this passage. Theologian R.C. Sproul said of this passage, understand that no person in the church is fully sanctified. We're not all perfect, right? We're not perfect. We all bring baggage. All we have to do to destroy each other is to nitpick. Love covering sins sometimes means to ignore the small stuff. But sometimes love means you address your brother and sister in the faith. You you confront them. But listen, it's all about how we do that that matters. And our hearts should always be to restore and to help and to redirect that person for their own benefit and for the glory of God. And we should always have the heart that Paul lays out in Galatians 6.1. We should confront them Gently. We should confront them lovingly because you too could fall in the same sin that your brother and sister fell into. So, regardless of how you respond, the point that Peter is making is always respond out of a heart of love. It's what covers sin. See, love in Christ, allowing the love of Christ to flow in us and through us to each other is the love that holds all of us together. It's the love that holds sinful people together. The reason why this is so incredibly important, friends, listen, is because Peter understands the prayer that Jesus gave before he ascended into heaven. One of his final prayers was a prayer for you and a prayer for me. It was a prayer for for his church in the future. That's us. And he prayed that we would be unified in him. That there wouldn't be all sorts of division and separation and conflict. Why? Because we can't be a powerful witness to a world that is fragmented, hurting, broken, and needs the love of Christ, that reconciling power of Christ. We won't witness if we're not together. And that's why this is so incredibly important. Peter's saying, the end is near. Be a people that prays and be a body of Christians that love each other, because love covers a multitude of sins. Point number three, the final point. We're called to serve out of our giftedness. Look what, look what Peter says here. Each of you should use whatever gift 
you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Serve where you are gifted. Hey, have you ever seen somebody who's just really good at what they do? And it's exciting to see that. A few days back, my wife and I and the kids went to Boston. And we were in one of the marketplaces there, the outdoor market areas that they have in Boston. And there was this young boy, maybe 10 years old. He was incredible on the keyboards. And I literally, I was watching him saying, oh my goodness, I've never seen anybody play like that. I mean, he did it with such ease. He had a big smile on his face. Man, I was so excited watching him. And then, if that wasn't enough, he throws the saxophone on and starts playing the sax. Incredible. And I thought to myself, if I practiced for 30 years, <laughs> I wouldn't be that good. And the reason is because he has a natural God-given ability for music. And then I thought, what a shame it would be if that just lied dormant in him. If he didn't know he had that ability. See, what's exciting about this passage is that Peter is saying to you and to me as Christians, he's saying this, every single one of you has a gift. It's a spiritual gift. And we all have that. Now, there's a little difference between a spiritual gift and a natural ability. A natural ability we have when we're born. A spiritual gift we get when we are Christians, when we're born again. Natural ability can be all about you. Spiritual gifts are all about others for God's glory, okay? There's some difference. For the Christian, they can be one and the same. Why? God gives them to us both, all right? The point is, and what's exciting, is that God has given you a gift. And what's even more exciting than that is that just like that boy excels in music, you too have been equipped by God to excel in certain areas of ministry, and God wants you focused there. Man, you think it would be a shame for that boy not to figure out what he was gifted in, what his ability was. It would be even more of a shame if we didn't discover that gift and it just lied dormant in us. That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 says, do not be ignorant of your spiritual gifts. In fact, Paul writes extensively about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12. And what you see there in the New Testament is about 20 spiritual gifts that are listed in the Bible. For example, gift of leadership, gift of mercy, gift of evangelism, gift of teaching, and so forth. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it say that those gifts are exhaustive, so they're most likely broad categories or examples of ways in which the body of Christ is gifted. But the point is, we're all gifted as Christians. And we're to use it to build up the church. Now, you know, sometimes I think there's a bit, a bit of confusion around spiritual gifts in just everyday, normal Christian ethics, if you will. 
For example, we know that Paul said there is a gift of evangelism and there is a gift of mercy, for example. But we can also go to other passages of Scripture that call all Christians to be, let's say, merciful, right? So please, listen. If a friend of yours comes up to you with some real need, do not turn your back on them and say, I'm sorry, I do not have the gift of mercy, you know. That wouldn't be good. There's some things we do as Christians, but when you have the spiritual gift, it means two things. Number one, you find incredible joy when you exercise it. Number two, you're good at it. Because, because the Holy Spirit has equipped you to be good at it. You excel at it. There is fruit when you do it. A number of years ago, over 20 years ago, I had to get some injections, steroid injections in my back. It was following some back surgery that I had had. And a very simple procedure, an outpatient procedure, uh, but I needed a ride to the hospital because I couldn't drive home after the procedure. And my mom took me to the hospital. And after I got my gown on, I went into the waiting room, and the waiting rooms were separated. Men were on one side, women were on the other side. And there was about a, you know, a quarter of the wall left up top. It was a three-quarter wall, so you could kind of hear what was going on on both sides. Well, anyway, I go in, my mom goes in, and I sit down where the men are. And I, first thing I do, open my magazine, boom, read. That's what everybody does, right? I mean, it's pretty quiet. My mom goes to the other side. And within moments, I hear talking. And then I hear laughter. And then I hear more talking and, and laughter. And, 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 and I know my mom is in the middle of it because I hear her thick Italian accent. But I can't hear what they're saying. After the procedure, we're driving home. I said, Mom, what were you guys talking about? She goes, this is a hospital. What an opportunity to talk to people about God. Long story short, no exaggeration, she leaves the hospital with a small group of women because she was in a waiting room. See, my mom has the gift of evangelism. I have the gift of reading magazines. You know what I'm saying. She's got the gift. People are at ease. The Holy Spirit has equipped her to do that. Brings me to my next point, which is this. We all, we all got the gift, but we're all uniquely gifted by God. No two people are exactly gifted in the same way. I had a mentor, a friend of mine some years ago, who gave me a powerful illustration of the unique gifts that we have in God. And he said, picture the gifts that God gives us as colors on a palette. And picture God dipping, those, dipping his paintbrush in each of those colors, and he paints you a unique color, and you a unique color, and you a unique color. So you could have a thousand people with the gift of leadership, let's say, but each one has a different degree of leadership ability. Some lead five, some lead 10, some lead a hundred, some lead thousands, and every one of them leads differently. In fact, when Paul was talking to the, or writing to the first century church of Corinth about spiritual gifts, he was emphasizing the importance of our uniqueness in building up the body. This is what he says. 
And, and he's driving home the point here by comparing the body of Christ, meaning the church, meaning us, with our physical bodies. This is what he says. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? I love this. Catch this. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Translation, we're all needed. Every one of us is needed in the church. We're needed to further God's kingdom. And he has a gift and a purpose for you to exercise and fulfill. Now listen. In light of that uniqueness, there, there's some things you don't want to do. Number one, you, you do not want what someone else has. In other words, you don't want to sit back and say, man, I wish I had what that gift is or what that person is gifted in, and I wish I had what they have in their giftedness. And the reason is because God has uniquely gifted you to excel in certain areas of ministry. And remember, the Holy Spirit gives it to you. It's not something you earn. It's something you are given. Look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 11. All these, meaning the spiritual gifts, all these are the work of one and the same spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So, so don't want what someone else has. And don't ever develop arrogance or pride in your gifts, because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about building the faith of other people for God's glory. In fact, Paul pens 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter we just looked at. He writes that to dispel some erroneous thinking that was going on around spiritual gifts in the first century church of Corinth. And there was a group of Christians there that wanted what some of the other, wanted, wanted some of the gifts that the other people had, the, the more visible gifts, the more front and center gifts. They wanted them. And the ones who had the more visible gifts were developing arrogance and pride in them. And Peter stopped the whole conversation and he said this, if you don't have love as the motivation behind exercising your gift, you have nothing. It no longer is spiritual if it's all about you. It's no longer spiritual. You have to have absolute humility, and you have to have absolute dependence on the Holy Spirit when you exercise the gift. The final verses in our passage, Peter says this, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God is praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the power, the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's not about us. The gift is all about others and God. 
So there's seven points. Very quickly, I'm just going to hit them quickly. I wish I had them in your notes. I don't, but we talked about it. But I'm just going to quickly summarize seven points about spiritual gifts. Every Christian has them. All of us are uniquely gifted. The Holy Spirit is the source of our gifts. We don't earn them. They are gifted to us. The focus of our spiritual gifts is building the faith up of other people for God's glory. God wants us primarily focused where we're gifted. Why? He has equipped us to excel there. Six, you know when you're exercising your spiritual gifts, when you have joy. And seven, when you have fruit. So the question is, what are your, your gifts? How has God gifted you? Now, I know there are people in, in this church at all our campuses, I know there are some people with some serious gifts, and, and you know what they are, and you're using them. That's awesome. Keep on doing it. I think a church our size, without question, there are some here that kind of have an idea of where they're gifted, but they're not. They're, they're on the sidelines. If that's you, get involved. We need you. But I do believe there's some that just don't know how God has uniquely gifted them and listen, I believe this is a prayer God will answer. If you have a heart to know where you are gifted, yield to the Holy Spirit, pray that God will reveal how he has uniquely gifted you and have a heart to build up the faith of another. And I believe God will answer that prayer and he will begin to show you how you're gifted. But I also think in addition to that, you may want to take a spiritual gift test. You may want to sign up for some of our classes that deal with discovering your spiritual gifts so that you can step back and evaluate, how has God uniquely wired me? So if that's something you're interested in, talk to somebody in the lobby, in the information center, at all the campuses, talk to somebody, maybe the lead pastor, and they can help you discover how God has uniquely gifted you. But listen, at the end of the day, the only way you will know is if you start trying things out. Volunteer for things. Get involved. You know, as the saying says, goes, you can't move a parked car. Get moving. And you'll begin to discover how God wired you. And you will begin to discover this is my area of giftedness because you're good at it. God has equipped you and there's fruit and you will find incredible joy when you do. So let me close where we started. Peter in this passage is saying, look it, I want you to live like you're dying. I want you to have your mind focused on the end because life is short. And I want that to begin to change the way you think. I want that to begin to impact your perspective, to reorder priorities if necessary. And I want that to call you into action because one day every single one of us will come face to face with our Heavenly Father and we will have to give an account of our lives. And there is two questions that every one of us, I believe, will be asked. Question number one, what did you do with Jesus Question number two, what did you do with the blessings and the gifts I have given you as a believer? Peter, in this passage, is talking about the second question. The first one deals with salvation. The second one deals with stewardship. 
And in fact, in this passage, Peter says, the end is near, therefore pray, serve, love. And then he says, as faithful stewards of God's grace. You see, a steward is someone who manages something of value for another person. They don't own it, they manage it. Something is entrusted to them. And Jesus, when I think of stewardship, I immediately, my mind immediately goes to the parable that Jesus gives, the parable of the talents. And I don't have time to go into that. But very, very quickly, it's a parable about a rich man who before he goes off to a long journey, he gives three of his servants some money. He entrusts them with money. One, he gives five talents. A second one, he gives two talents. The third one, he gives one talents, and he leaves. He comes back after a long period of time, and he says, what'd you do with what I've entrusted you with? And the first and second servant, the one that had five talents and two talents, they doubled what the master had given them, and the master was real pleased. The final servant, the third one, he did nothing with what he was blessed with, with what he was entrusted with. And the master, as you remember, was not pleased. And we need as Christians to just stop and reflect just for a moment of how God has blessed us and how he has entrusted us as Christians with so many gifts. He's entrusted us with the gift of forgiveness, with the gift of salvation, with the gift of his Holy Spirit, and yes, with spiritual gifts. And he wants us to use them in a way, to be engaged in a way that gives glory and honor back to him because he has entrusted us with so much. So this is my prayer as I close. I pray... I pray that each of us, as a body of Christians, I pray that we would understand the need for prayer, that we would understand the importance of love, and that we would understand the need to be called into action for serving and in serving each other in the faith. So that when we are face to face with our Heavenly Father, we will hear what Jesus said in that parable to the first and second servants. He said, well done, good and faithful servants. Well done. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. This passage is very simple. Peter says, the end is near. Pray, love, serve for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, we are so indebted to the truth that is in your word. And Father, for me, this passage was an incredibly challenging passage. And yes, it may be a simple message, but it is not an easy message. It is a message that we as a body cannot carry out without you helping us, Father. And so we come together here as a body of believers, praying that you would give us an ability to understand how you have called us to action for your glory. And Father, I pray